Hello and welcome to what could be the final guest of 2023. I'm your co-host, F1 Blag, and today we have a guy that not only has he uh, started his own podcast, uh, and we should talk a bit about that, but also manages talent in motorsport media, and he's got a background uh, in sports management as well. So without further ado, Tim Sylvie, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. Good to have you. Uh, the question we always ask, I guess, as we, we sort of start the podcast is, how would you introduce yourself to, to someone new? So introduce yourself to our listeners, Tim. Um, it's, it's always quite a tricky one. Um, there's a lot of things I do. Well, basically, I'm, I'm a 42-year-old I'm a 40 bloke who um, has worked in and around Formula One for, and more recently, Formula E for um, a lot of years. And um, all on the business or the commercial side of the sport. So um, in in going back in time, I guess you could describe what I do um, for a long time as Formula One sponsorship and then um, brokering various deals and in more recent history, race and driver management, talent management um, with some media and podcasting thrown in and, and a whole host of other random things. Um, so it, it's always a difficult question to answer and there's my pretty um, elongated <laughs> and, and terrible reply. Gosh, I mean, you should, uh, I don't know how, what the character limit is on LinkedIn, but you should have a go at putting that in your <laughs> byline or something. I don't know. It's a tough one. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, welcome. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you here and really intrigued to, to have a conversation. Um, the next thing we tend to ask people, because we're a motorsport podcast, but we have sort of people from media, people from sports management, you know, drivers, et cetera, all sorts of people. But we asked them, what's your first memory of motorsport growing up? Um, I don't remember the specific race, but um, I suppose like a lot of people growing up, I used to spend um, Sunday afternoons in front of the TV with my family and my extended family um, turning on the Formula One on one of four channels that we had at the time um, with, you know, the, the late, great Murray Walker um, in the comms box. And, and I remember those days. And at that time, it was something that we all followed as a family, but I didn't, well, I wouldn't say I had a particular passion for it. That came much, much later. But yeah, those, those were my earliest memories when I was maybe, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. Um, my, my first early memories of, of racing. Yeah. Very good. We could do some calculation and work out, you know, seven or eight, only four channels in the UK. We could kind of age you, but I'll, I'll let the yeah. listeners do that. Um, yeah. So you talked about like discovering a passion later on for motorsport. When would you say that came in? Uh, that was around 2005. So um, mm. before then, um, it, well, after I sort of um, finished watching F1 on a Sunday and got involved with, you know, other things like, you know, other sports on the weekends or, you know, college and university and, and then starting to work. I, I, I was working not in motorsport. I was working in recruitment and it wasn't until about the end of 2004 um, or early 2005, I got um, a, 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 an old family friend who ran a motorsport um, marketing agency said why don't you come and do an internship with me if you're not happy doing what you're doing and I uh, that's when I first was exposed to Formula One proper and and found myself in a paddock and in the paddock club and going to races and that's when I discovered my love for the sport but it was far more on the um, on the business side of the sport than necessarily what was happening on track um, although my love for Formula One has developed over the years and I've I've become more of a um, a sporting fan, but um, 
my initial introduction to Formula One was finding a passion for the business of motorsport. Oh, well, I mean, there's plenty of business when it comes to motorsport. And I can see here that you, I think, were involved in the first ever Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Is that right? Yeah, um, I was shipped out to the Middle East when um, the racetrack was still under construction. I think I was um, maybe one of the first 20 or 30 employees at Yas Marina Circuit. I was actually contracting there um, and um, I was working for a guy called Richard Cregan, who used to be the boss of the Toyota um, or the Panasonic Toyota Formula One team. Um, Richard was the, the CEO at the time at Yas Marina Circuit. And, and yeah, we, we were there um really constructing the track deciding where you know signs would go where the parking would go really everything and um fully involved in the logistics of starting that first grand prix which was an eye-opening terrifying experience but uh, i learned a great deal i love that you uh you kind of elongated the name of toyota to panasonic uh toyota <laughs> spoken like a true account manager uh, of global <laughs> it's sponsorship. drilled into me yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly they're not getting their value if you don't mention yeah. it every time yeah exactly yeah <laughs> so i mean uh, i hope you don't mind me asking but you, you you sort of said um you know someone said to you at the time if you don't like what you're doing come and do this so what yeah. were you doing before you kind of found your way into that sort of sports sponsorship and and, and then well I was academically fairly useless at school. Um, I didn't really get on with the British education system and left school with very few qualifications, sort of um, bumbled my way into a pretty poor university with a pretty poor qualification um, and uh, left early. I quit university early after my placement year and um, I found myself doing recruitment, which you know, I know I think, you know, some people make a fantastic career and amazing businesses out of recruitment. For me, it was the only thing I could fall into and make a bit of money um, with almost zero qualifications. So I was doing that and I I, I didn't mind it. I was OK at it and I, I did quite well for a year or so. I was in there, but I knew it wasn't my calling um, and I would moan about it quite a lot. And and this chap, Jonathan Bedansky, who was quite a big wig in sports sponsorship at the time, said, well, come and come and work for me um, for three months, and it, and it escalated from there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I remember that period of recruitment consulting. Uh, I think I finished. When did I finish school? Two thousand and five or something like that. It was big. Uh, maybe just up to that period, lots of you know, lots of jobs in my little hometown. Um, yeah. Doing that. Uh, but yeah, I'd never quite understood exactly how how to do it. But so, so you went into. You went into that sort of sports sponsorship side. What were the, you know, what were your early experiences there? Were you put straight onto the Formula One account, or were there other accounts that you were sort of looking? Yeah, at? straight onto um, Toyota and wow. and looking after Panasonic um, from 2005 till 2007. And that that was there were other sports. I was dabbling in um, athletics, the World Athletics Championship, and we did um, a little bit of rugby and and quite a bit of golf with Lexus. But the, the main thing was um, Panasonic and looking after that account and working with Toyota across their endurance racing in Formula One. Um, and and I just immediately took to it. I was uh, very quickly working harder than most people and longer hours and just thinking, what, why is no one else doing this? And um, it, it allowed me to to rise up through the ranks of, of a relatively modest um, sports marketing agency, but a, but a prominent one in terms of its client list. Um, quite quickly I, I really really I think that was the moment I thought I've I found what I like to do 
and and that's sort of i guess how passion manifests right because if you're in a job for a nine to five or to get the salary you'll probably do what needs to be done or if you're told to do something then you'll get on yeah. with it but it sounds like you were really engrossed in it um, i was yeah yeah and, and toyota back then because obviously they were one of the two big manufacturers that pulled out around the time of the global financial crisis but yeah. they were they could have been actually one of the uh, sort of the teams with the largest budgets in f1 i might be getting that wrong but yeah. i remember it no no it was massive you're yeah? you're, you're absolutely right they had huge budgets and um and fantastic facilities um mm. you know the wind tunnel in cologne and they, they they had all the money in the world but they just couldn't quite switch it on but um it, it was great fun um it was i don't uh, to be honest don't remember a huge amount from those days because before the crash in you know, 2005 to 2007 it was really peak party <laughs> time in formula one you know there was a lot of really cool parties and i was young and mm. so was everyone else and we just had a really really good time yeah i guess whatever the opposite of austerity is it was that yeah uh, it, it was definitely the opposite of that yeah <laughs> so at the time i'm just looking at this because i remember it quite well the drivers were ralph schumacher and uh yeah. jano trulli in the end did you get yeah. to meet those guys? Were you sort of, uh, yes, you know, did, yeah. they, did they know you or how, how did that work? I wouldn't say they knew me at the time. <laughs> I was the very bottom rung of the ladder. And um, I was the guy who, you know, if if we needed to move one of them to um, a sponsor a dinner or a press event or something, you know, I was the guy on the moped that they would just jump on and I'd take them around the corner to some different, you know, office or hospitality unit and, and ask them to speak to people. Um, mm. I was... While I was, you know, I wasn't shy or anything, I, I felt extremely, um, I guess, it, you know, that sort of imposter syndrome feeling where you're like, what am I doing here? How, how am I suddenly in, in spa with uh, Ralph Schumacher and Jarno Trilli and all these senior people that, and I don't know what I'm doing. And it was, it, there was no training, you know, it was just get in there and, and work it out for yourself. Uh, but no, they didn't know who I was. I was, I was you know, I was a, a literally a nobody at that point. Well, um, I think those are those things we tell ourselves. I'm sure you were never a nobody. And, and certainly the implication is you're, you're a somebody now. So um, you you left um, you left that job. And I think, did you set up for your, yourself with your own company? Is that right after that? Yeah, I, I, I stayed with BSL, which what it became known as, Bodansky Sponsorship Limited for six years. And um, I, I in, in that six-year period from 2005, I, I, I went from that sort of, you know, nobody to, um, I, I guess a, a, a bigger fish in a small pond. And I, I, I left as a shareholder and director, um, and started up, um, in 2012, um, after my last in, in the middle East, I, I set up, a uh, a limited company just to be a vehicle really for my, my own activity and to try and make my own way in life. And, um, without the help or, or try or lining anyone else's pockets really. Um, and that's when I, I got really lucky and um, landed quite a big contract at the London Olympics um, by pure coincidence that, that set me on my way. I think, I think London 2012, I mean, I'm not, I'm not implying that, you know, the UK is in huge decline or anything, but certainly it felt like a huge peak. Um, I think we all know where we were during the opening ceremony. And it was a moment where, you know, there was a kind of spirit, all the volunteers and all the events it was a fantastic summer so so what was that job around the london 2012 olympics do you remember it well 
I do. I had, so I started up, um, th- you know, a little flat in London at my desk thinking that I'm going to make the next big sponsorship agency. And the first gig I got was nothing to do with sponsorship. So I, I had a phone call from a guy I used to work with at Yas Marina circuit called Dave Sadler, who, um, is, is a bit of a, he, he's a legend in, in the sort of events, mass, um, participation, um, events, sporting world. And he phoned and said, we need, um, 50 or so staff in the next month um to move the olympians and the um the volunteers and the athletes from point to point we need people who can you know man bus stations and depots and create transport plans and all this and i was like cool right you know beggars can't be choosers let's go and um we we rounded up um a group of 50 people some with zero experience some with a lot um came up with a price for them marked them up and sold them into locog basically and, and set ourselves up in canary wharf um on the 30th floor or whatever it was of one of those buildings there where they had a headquarters and we ran a transport program for six months in the lead up to and during the london olympics and it and it was mind-boggling and i had again and uh, you know first gig on my own no idea what i was doing um trying to run a business and staff and yeah it was mind-boggling loads of fun no sleep um but again a great learning experience and um if nothing else it taught me how to deal with um people because you know these people were working 18 hour days every day and i can't believe we didn't lose anybody or you know no one quit everyone stuck it out and um it was it was amazing and and it it was very very rewarding to deliver that and have a a small part to play in the the running of that event yeah it was it was a big time and I wonder, did you ever put yourself forward uh, when you knew there was going to be, you know, I don't know, Usain Bolt needs to get from A to B? Did you did you happen to bump into anyone prestigious in that period? I didn't because I was literally sat in front of a laptop for the entire time. <laughs> I, I saw nothing, which it tends to be the way with um, yeah. these things for a long, you know, many, many years. It's, it all sounds um, fun and, and glamorous, but you find yourself in a windowless room, usually in a hotel basement, um, you know, just plotting the next thing. Yeah, I can imagine. And part of you probably just wanting to make sure, as you say, you don't lose anyone. You're, yeah. you're agonizing over spreadsheets and, you know, the things yeah. that are less glamorous, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. So um, you mentioned that obviously alongside the, the sponsorship and, and marketing that you moved into driver management. Yeah. Um, and I presume that was uh, sort of in various bits of motorsport. Do you have any sort of yeah. notable alumni that were under your management? I do. I, uh, and I guess at the time I didn't realize what was going to happen with some of these people. Mm. One or two of them went on to quite impressive things. So the, the reason it started was, um, a company, well, a guy I know called Rob Cunningham, who, who was in music management was working for a company called crown talent and media group. Um, they wanted to start, they were a music management company and they wanted to get involved in motorsport. Um, they phoned me through him and, um, we had a meeting and they said, we want to start a driver management company, you know, motorsport. Um, do you want to head it up? So I was like, yeah, cool. Um, it's all investor backed. And, um, in walked a, a string bean called Max Chilton, who, um, at the time was, I think he just finished fourth in GP two. Well, what was GP two now, obviously F two. And he had a seat for formula one, um, that year, the following year. And he needed management. So I took on him um, in his first year with Marusha, 
when he was racing alongside, um, he would end up racing alongside people like Jules Bianchi um, and his brother Tom, who was at the time, I think, in either British or World Touring Cars, I can't remember. So that's how that business started. And we started with those two. And then we moved into a guy called Ollie Webb, who's um, a Le Mans LMP racer, um, mm. has gone on to really good, amazing, had a great career. Um, uh, Struan Moore, who is now in management himself, is George Russell's best mate and was a, a fantastic racing driver in Blanc Pan Endurance uh, for McLaren and uh, a McLaren customer team. And uh, probably the most notable after Max, or you could argue actually bigger than Max, is Jamie Chadwick, who has gone on to fantastic things. I managed her for a number of years and, and actually transitioned her from GT cars into single seaters um, and, um, and will regularly um claim that i i launched her career in single seaters um and uh had a great time with her um and we built a management company that worked and ran very very well for a number of years that was great fun i think i did ended up doing that for five or six years wow i mean yeah max chilton uh obviously uh had his time in formula one then went out to indycar and had some success there yeah. Um, right. which is which is fantastic but Jamie Chadwick she almost well not almost she sort of superseded the W series it almost felt like in the yeah. end it became a vehicle um, to launch her stardom and she's of course in the US as well like fa fantastic yeah. it, would you yeah. say that it was right place right time or did you have an eye for talent like how did you how did someone sort of say okay I've got an email in my inbox someone called Jamie Chadwick wants a manager like how did you come across her do you know what? I can't remember how we ended up working with her. I, I expect um, her dad, uh, Mike, would have reached out at some point to say, mm. can we have a conversation? Um, you know, what we were trying to do was was quite appealing for racing drivers because a big part of it was sponsorship. And, you know, we were tasked with raising the funds so that they could go racing, whether that was Max. And at the time, what felt like a huge amount of money to go racing, which was 11 million quid, which now seems like absolute chicken feed um, for certain teams. Um, but at the time it was a lot of money um, and Jamie had to raise, you know, several hundred thousand to keep her race seats going. So a big part of it was that. Um, so people would approach us every now and again, and we wanted to keep the roster pretty small so that we could give mm. them all a decent service. And we had lots of services. We had a PR team and we had Tom Gaymore. Um, he was doing the, the, the driver coaching side. I was on the commercial side and sort of heading up the, the team. Um, so it was, it was a good, it was a good little business, good little offering for a while, um, until it sort of uh, ran its course and, and it was again onto the, onto the next. That's, that's amazing that you were kind of working with Tom, who of course is now famed for doing the kind of infill, uh, UK commentary on IndyCar, um, yes, when, that's when right. on a break, which is, I think my favorite bit of, uh, of the series. Cause he, he's oft, often trying to manage like the technical, like, are they coming back from a break, but also yes. feed you that Intel. So yeah, fantastic. Well, well weirdly Tom, Tom and I actually had a bit of a falling out at the end of that business and, and weirdly, at, um, we're, we're about to go into business together again um, with the, the new podcast business. So he's he's hopefully coming back into the fall. We've been talking a lot lately. Uh, he's done a couple of shows with me and um, we're, we're back on on solid terms and um, and hopefully going to be doing some more stuff with him in the, in the uh, early in the new year. Fantastic. Well, we'll keep our eyes peeled for that. And yeah, maybe that's a small exclusive in brackets. Uh, tell, don't don't correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> um, so, so you, you mentioned actually that like 11 million pounds at the time felt like a lot of money. And of course, um, with Max, uh, we know he was racing for, uh, Marussia and, you know, that was in the advent, I think post 2010, there were sort of three teams that were granted, 
um, the right to enter Formula One. And they were always, I think, on the back foot before yeah. a cost cap, trying to try to get the funding that they needed. So are you suggesting that like 11 million pounds wouldn't get you kind of a reserve driver now or like have the, have the numbers gone astronomical? Yeah, I mean, um, 11 million pounds, that was, you know, that was for the back of the grid team, uh, the gypsies mm. of the grid, as Bernie called it at the time. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, there were there were seats a few years later that were going for 25 million. Um, and uh, I, I don't know what it would cost somebody now to get, a, it, you know, an entry into a, a back of the grid team. I think the models changed a bit, you know, I think more of the grid are now being paid as opposed to paying to drive. But uh, yeah, I mean, 11 million quid doesn't get you very far anymore. I, I guess also, and I don't know if this quite reads across because possibly driver salaries are outside of the cost cap, but the cost cap yeah. might have helped, um, you know, avoid, you know, if you look at Williams, let's say, for example, who massive in the 90s when, when I was growing up, presumably when you were as well, and then gradually slowly but surely you could sort of see their driver choices being about a bit about sponsorship or which engine they'd bring and so on yeah they looks like they've gone away from that now with with sort of albon and sergeant i I imagine they you know they're not asking for a lot of money they might bring a little bit in sponsorship but they're not huge uh you know pay drivers anymore so so maybe the models change as you say yeah and, and and that's the cost cap at play yeah, I, I would have thought so. I mean, the cost cap is a good thing and there's other series looking at doing a similar thing. It's obviously worked quite well. And um, yeah, as you say, you know, Williams have, have turned the tide and hopefully with the likes of Alex Albon um, mm. leading the line there, um, perhaps there are some some good days to come, um, particularly after the, the reset in 2026. Yeah, absolutely. I think after the reset in 2026 is, you know, for those of us that, I don't know. I, I don't mind seeing uh, dominance, and and it, it is amazing to see that a driver basically won the constructors' championship this year. Yeah. <laughs> Equally, it feels like it will take that reset to you know bring another team into play. That's my my view. So that'll be the yes. next sort of intriguing season. There's so many directions we could go in here, but before we do, um, those of you at home that are listening, do um, put a comment under uh, you know whatever platform you're listening to us on. You might be on YouTube. You might. Might be, uh, I don't know, I, I have Podbean because I, I'm a bit of a boomer and don't know what uh, app to use on my Android device because I'm too cheap for Apple. But, you know, wherever you are, give us a review, give us a comment, let us know what you think and, and tell us about guests for 2024. I know Georgie's working on it. So um, we play a little game, uh, Tim, on this podcast because uh, you mentioned Alex Albon and, you know, we started to talk about Formula One. So it's called uh, Taxi Dinner Avoid. So from the current grid, you have to pick a driver that you know you think his driving skills are particularly up to par he'd take you drive you to dinner pick a driver yeah. you want to kind of hang out with that dinner for the fascinating conversation obviously not necessarily yeah. all the grid of fame for that and then clearly avoid is self-explanatory and, and we're testing your i guess diplomatic skills because you strike me as the guy that you know you don't want to write off a connection or or, or your network so taxi <laughs> dinner avoid uh, from the 20 that are currently on the grid who will be on the grid next year as it happens um yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. So, uh, taxi. So, I want someone that's going to get me there safely, safe yeah. pair of hands, yeah. not going to get in a crash. Mm. Um, Verstappen would get road rage. So, I, I definitely <laughs> don't want him. Uh, I mean, Albon. Albon could be a good shot. He stays out of mm. trouble. He's a very friendly. I've I've been lucky enough to interview him quite a few times, and he's just a really nice bloke. Mm. Um, and you want your taxi driver to be friendly and have a have a chat with, you know, ask how his day's been, has he been busy? So I, I'd go, 
I'd go Albon for my taxi. Okay. Um, what was the next one? You got to have dinner. So someone that you find dinner. fascinating or want to have a good chat with. Um, I probably have dinner with Hamilton because he's a bit of an enigma. Like I, I've I've met him a few times and um, I've had nothing out of him. Like he's he he gives nothing away. Um, there's no small talk. You, you know, there was nothing. It was just come in, do the job, go. And so I've never got to know him. I've had beers with his dad, so I've had insights into the family. Mm. But I'd like to. I'd love. I'd like to get to know the real Lewis Hamilton. So I'd have dinner with him and ply him with alcohol and okay. make him talk. Um, and now avoid. Then, <laughs> avoid. Avoid. What don't I like in people? I don't, so I don't like uh, awkward people. So like my, the guy that signed off my extension on my house, the building inspector guy <laughs> that signs off for the cat. He was really awkward and patronizing, little bit sexist, not very nice. I can't say marzipan. So I think... <laughs> Let's go with who's a bit awkward out of the current crop. Not Norris, Leclerc, no, no, Verstappen's he's probably quite awkward. Um, who's down the back? Probably, um, I'm gonna go with um, I'm gonna go with Sonoda because I think we might have we might have very little in common. I'm quite tall, he's extremely <laughs> short. I don't know how good his English is. It might be a bit awkward. He's I, he can be. He doesn't like. I I don't think he likes small talk. Um, I know his trainer. We had him on the podcast, Michael Italiano. He said, you know, he just likes to get in, get out. Doesn't like the training. So I think I'd be Sonoda. I think he'd be. I think I'd find him awkward conversation. Okay. I mean, you know, you you made your way through that. I think if in the future uh, opportunities presented themselves you could explain that away you you know easy uh, yeah. exactly easy Fine. easy right yeah, yeah. no yeah. damage done unfortunately no. you know we try we try but there we are okay yeah. Yeah. so you've mentioned uh you know fascinating that you um have met loads of the drivers you, you talked about interviewing them and you had them on the podcast so am i right in thinking that you've got your own podcast with alex brundle and virtual statman sean kelly or have i made that up no, you haven't made that up. Okay. Um, that is that is true. So I've I've got a few. Well, uh, that <laughs> show is actually. Well, that one's we did that one for um, the race, yeah. uh, the race media. So that was um, a show that was sponsored by Ramco that we we put on especially for them. Hmm. And I can't remember how many episodes we did. I've still got a couple of interview bits to do for that um, show. But yeah, that was really good. It was it was. Um, we, we focused on a different thing um, in Formula One every week, whether it was like, what's the barge board or what, why do they use DRS or is DRS a good thing? And we'd, we'd use Sean Statman Kelly, who's well worth following on Twitter, um, to come up with all sorts of amazing data and statistics and even unearthing stuff that is exclusive, like that no one's found before about the subject that we're talking about. And then Alex provided the driver's perspective and I was the host holding it all together. So we had that show, which was really good fun and hopefully we'll continue that um next year if we can find another sponsor for it or we, we may just do it anyway because it was really good fun and, and did quite well and what did you find surprising about getting into podcasting or was that not your first endeavor had you previously had a show um th that was not my first one uh -huh. so um the motormouth podcast was my first one that's okay. now 180 episodes in Oof. there or thereabouts um and um yeah that that one 
that one encouraged me to st- set up a, a podcast network, which we, we only launched uh, maybe two weeks ago. And it's a soft launch. We've only got three shows at the moment. Um, one in Mot- one in Formula One, which is the Motormouth podcast. Um, we've got a, a MotoGP show but with Keith Hewin and Harry Benjamin. Um, Keith Hewin's a, a former British um, superbike rider. And uh, we've got a paddle show, which is hosted by a paddle PR guy called Ben Nichols and Britt Dubins, who's the top US paddle player. Um, and we've got uh, Mark Priestley's show coming across to us, Pit Lane F1 Life Lessons. Um, we've got a new show about sustainability with hopefully Nikki Shields is going to be hosting. And we've got, uh, what else? There was another one. Oh, yeah, the one with Tom, Tom Gaymore. We're hopefully going to be doing one about the police force with him because oh, he's yeah. heavily involved with that. Um, and um, yeah, we've got loads of ideas. We ha- we want to have fifty shows by the the middle of next year. Wow, okay, so that's quite exciting. We'll, we'll keep our yeah. eye out. You're going to sort of dominate the uh, the world of well. It sounds like not just motorsport, but actually, no. you know, policing. You've got paddle, which is yeah, huge a huge phenomenon. Yeah, fantastic. It okay. is. Yeah. What yeah. did you, when you when you started podcasting? Um, was there anything that surprised you about it? Clearly, you you. you already spoken to a lot of people networked and so on and then you're just putting the mic on and turning you know the grab grabbing it for for audio but like anything surprised you about yeah. it um i don't know that anything really surprised me about it i mean i i guess it's been um it's been better than i thought it would be um for my career i suppose because mm. it's it's opened up a lot of doors you know that we've had some really cool guests um who I've stayed in touch with and some have become friends, some have become colleagues, um, you know, and it, it's, it's afforded us, it's opened a lot of doors. We we've definitely met a lot of interesting people through it um, that have benefited the business, uh, the various businesses that, that we're involved with. Um, and it's allowed us to break down barriers with people we never thought we'd ever, ever get to meet. And that, yeah, as you'll know, with, with this show, podcasting feels like a one-on-one chat. So you end up, disarming people quite quickly and we've had like nico rosberg and um i don't know david coulthard you know kareen chandok people like that who who just seem to say whatever is on their mind and, and not you know hide behind media training like they tend to do on um sky sports <laughs> that was a shot at sky sports i don't know if they've not at all on right now i'm joking <laughs> no <laughs> I'm trying to create, but you know what I mean. You're not helping me. Yeah. Well, it's it's you know, I think people have a certain in front of camera persona, and they Mm. you know they do have to watch what they say because Mm. they're employed by those broadcasters. But when you're one on one on a podcast, it's a lot easier to to feel like you can say whatever you want to say. Yeah, I think that's right. I think you're having a chat, and you're you're right. You know, for me, it's also an excuse to meet interesting people like yourself. And yeah, you know, we've had two thirds of your podcast. uh, Oh, so we had Sean Kelly, and so we just await uh, Alex Brundle, Georgie, hint, hint, uh, for next season. Uh, yeah, Alex see- is great. And sh- yeah, go on. Sean's brilliant. I mean, Sean is, yeah. Sean, I mean, uh, where he stores these things, I will never know. And it's in his brain. I mean, I've tried to catch him out several times um, and throw <laughs> a left field question at him, and he'll have the answer. It's astonishing. Yeah, he, so, so when he came on, I'd, I was trying to be respectful and not, you know, try and, uh, you know, okay, tell me about this, but he, he can just do it and he's happy to do yeah. that. And, um, what's interesting is he, he explained the difference between that and then his offer to, you know, what is it like 23 odd or probably more broadcasters, which is yeah. obviously he's got it all in his brain, but he has a system 
and he has people yeah. and he has a structure that mean that it's kind of quality assured and, and so on. But yeah, yeah, phenomenal. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. He's outstanding. Yeah. Well, um, you know, uh, every success to your podcast, where can, uh, where can people find it? Have you got like, uh, presumably you've got Insta and, and, and Twitter and so yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just search for the Motormouth podcast or the OMG MotoGP podcast. If you're into your, your motorbikes, uh, yeah. the paddle movement podcast, and then, the website, which is uh, is just a holding page at the minute, but it's being redesigned right now, is motormouth.media. And that's that will be where all of our shows in the future can be found. Okay. Mot- motormouth.media, um, yeah. which, you know, who knows, you might not be listening to this when it first issues and you might just be able to go there right now and, uh, there you go. and see all the shows, which hopefully by that point will be 50 shows. I mean... Gosh, have you got some sort of niche shows that you you know in the back of your mind, or is it about finding the right talent? Like, how are you going to come up uh, with fifty concepts? Well, we've got quite a lot of ideas um, and quite a lot of hosts that we we have earmarked. You know, like the policing one, Tom Gamer was a natural fit because he's he's mm. got a decent profile and he's very involved with the Met Police and Thames Valley Police. Um, and, uh, you know, Nikki, obviously she, with her Formula E exploits is all across sustainability. So that kind of made sense. And she's got a good black book and a profile. And we, we have a, we do have a formula that we follow, um, that we think will, will cause, will, will create success for a show. Mm. And we have a commercial model that, that works for the hosts as well. Um, so it's, it's quite a tidy little offering and, and hopefully it'll, it'll continue to grow. And, and like you say, you know, next year, if we've got 50 shows and we keep going, you know, no reason why we can't have 200 shows in a few years time. Um, so we're just going to keep going with that and and see where it takes us. Brilliant. And I, I presume you don't want to disclose this mysterious formula that you think will bring success. Not really. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's not, it's not a major secret. I, I think it's, um, it, it's just a common sense approach to making sure that the hosts get some money um, and get some profile. We get some money and, um, you know, that, that we can reinvest into the business. We're not doing it to line our own pockets at the moment. This is, you know, any money we make, we put back into the business, which is exactly what we, we've already started doing. Um, and if we do to sell one day, we want to make sure that the hosts who have helped grow that network are looked after. So we have, uh, we have various sort of tiers that, um, make sure that everyone benefits in one way or another. Okay. Well, you disclose more than I expected. So, uh, thank you for being forthcoming and yeah, best of luck. Maybe, maybe it'll be 200 shows. Exactly. Why, why limit, why limit the number? Um, yeah. So uh, before we get onto news, because um, there's been an interesting development in, you know, with the FIA and Formula One this afternoon uh, at time of recording. Um, what is there anything else that's keeping you busy? Because I, I kind of look at your profile and you kind of started in sponsorship. You've done driver management. You're in sort of the media business, I suppose you could call it. But like, yeah, and you you sort of had that long um, byline that we're going to put on your imaginary LinkedIn. Um, what else have you got other things on your plate you seem like you've got a finger in every pie at the moment I do I have uh, I, I'm a consultant for um, the race media so they they own the race and they own WTF1 and um, uh, Andrew Vandenberg who um, founded the business phoned me in I think it was probably January or February 2023 and he said I've got an idea um, I want to start a F1 content creator management company um can you come and run it so um we agreed over a couple of non-alcoholic brew dogs that <laughs> we would uh, it was uh, must have been january non-alcoholic brew dogs that we would have a go at this and see what happened and we 
we launched it um, earlier, uh, well, sort of Q1, Q2-ish, 2023, mm. um, at F1 Arcade in London with um, a very small founding roster of, I think, eight content creators. And then we grew it to 25, um, which is where we are now. We want 50 by next year, sort of middle to end of next year. Um, and we've got creators from all over the world, including the next Sean Kelly, a guy called F1 Stat Guru in India, who's fantastic. Um, and um, we've got all sorts of different people, micro creators through to people with um, several million uh, followers um, or subscribers. And um, yeah, we're, we're helping them grow, helping them monetize, professionalize, just giving them the tools they need to um, turn content creation from a, a, a side hustle or a part-time thing in their bedroom into a, a fully blown business where, where they're fully ingrained with the, the F1 ecosystem. And it's been, it's been a real success. And we've, we've seen some life-changing stuff for some of the creators like Caroline in America, who we've got F1 Caroline, she's fantastic. And, um, you know, she was in Austin, she was in the paddock with Aston and Red Bull, wow. and she was doing, she was doing sponsor activations for all sorts of different brands. And, she was earning money and she was getting great exposure and she had unrivaled access to the teams and the drivers. And, you know, it's so cool to see people going from bedroom to paddock in a very short space of time. Yeah. I mean, it sounds incredible. You're kind of equipping people that have presumably a natural passion that is charismatic for the, for motorsport with the business side and the structure that they need to succeed. That sounds amazing. And the contacts. Yeah. It's brilliant. It's really good fun. Um, and then with the race, we've got something really exciting happening in um, January or February that I can't talk about until then. But it's super exciting. So um, definitely stay tuned. If you're if you're an F1 fan, stay tuned to to what's happening at the race. It's going to be well the the, the race media, which is sort of the, the overarching brand, but some stuff is happening within there that's quite exciting that I'm looking forward to. Okay, I'm going to predict that they're going to get a sponsorship from Panasonic and then you'll have to call them Panasonic <laughs> Race Media, but there we are. I mean, I mean, Panasonic even exists anymore? I never see Panasonic anywhere. Like, well, as someone that grew up in the 80s and 90s, they, they did a lot of batteries. That's all I remember. But beyond yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those were the days. Uh, there we go. The days. <laughs> okay, well, we'll, st- we'll kind of keep our eyes peeled for sort of January, February time and the Race yep. Media. Fantastic. Yep. Okay. Well, look, um, let's dive into the big story of the day. Um, and it is that uh, the FIA has put out a statement saying it's looking into claims of a conflict of interest between Susie Wolf and her husband. And I'm saying it in that order deliberately, Toto Wolf. Um, and clearly this has come on the back of a bit of a storm, um, possibly possibly egged on by Christian Horner or people from that sort of camp that mm-hmm. um, Toto Wolf has had access to information about uh, F1 and has been disclosing it um, beyond where he should have done. I don't know, have you been following any of that story? Is that, does that ring a bell to you? Um, not really. I mean, I, I've, I've, not, I've not read up on that story yet. Um, mm. if, it, if, it, if there's any truth in it. I mean, the trouble is there's never... You very rarely see smoke without fire, do you, in in Formula One? So, no. you know, if if there is a rumor there, there's got to be something attached to it. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I I've not heard anything. I'm sure I will over the coming days from from the guys at the race and all the journalists who have very much got their finger on the pulse. Um, but uh, no, I I don't I don't know whether there's any um, substance behind those those stories. 
Yeah, well, we'll find out in due course, I guess. And I, I think it's yeah. it, it's just indicative of, um, you know, motorsport, or so let's say talk Formula One really specifically, it's got the governance arm, which is the FIA. And then obviously it's got the commercial rights holder, which, you know, is Formula One, uh, you know, brought yeah. to us by Liberty Media. And, you know, there was an antitrust case probably going back 25 years uh, where the EU said that, you know, these two must be separate. So, of course, yeah. that's a kind of strange relationship where you've got people administering the race and following, you know, these are the rules and this is how, you know, we have to enforce them. And then you've got people that are trying to make money off the sport and, and, and you know, trying yeah. to present it to an audience. And that relationship always going to be, you know, intention if those people can't be together. So it's, it's an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah, it is an interesting one. And it'd be a shame if something dodgy has gone on because, you know, I think the likes of um, Susie and Toto have been game-changing for the sport, um, you know, in many, many ways, from business to inclusivity. Um, and, you know, Susie touches a lot of areas of the sport um, with her work in Formula E and F1 Academy and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I hope I hope it's all, you know, just a bit of bluster and there isn't too much too much nastiness behind it. No, I, I hope so too. And, you know, it, it's one of those things where um, clearly we talked about the reset for 2026 and uh, yeah. the FIA will be thinking carefully about that. Um, I presume um, that, that will all be linked to a Concord agreement. And that's, again, that really complicated um, or that, that tight balance between, you know, you've got the people governing the sport, you've got Liberty, but you've also got the teams and they have yeah. to sign up to the rules, but also the commercial arrangements. You know, for example, those that see... Williams and and Ferrari get a heritage payment uh, for for turning up because they are, you know, prestigious names in the sport. Presumably yeah. McLaren as well. So so yeah, it's it's you know from a legal perspective, there there have to be these kind of walls in place to avoid that insider trading. I guess I'm using that term loosely. So yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. No, it's it's it's, cool. it's always interesting to see what goes on in in the sport. And it, we had an interesting chat with the guys at Lucky Sons. Have you heard of them yet? I haven't. No, go on. Lucky Sons are um, three or four guys, Paul Fleming, um, there's Andy, Benjamin um, and Steve. And they're, they're, they've raised an awful lot of money, um, allegedly over a, a billion dollars mm. to start a, a Formula One team. Um, and they've had one bid rejected by the FIA. So they're now moving to the, the model of buying an existing Formula One team or want to. So they've got conversations with three or four potential suitors and, um, and um, it's one of those, where, you, you know, you, you talk to them and you, you have to believe, you take them at face value and they say a lot of interesting things and they have very interesting plans for whatever the team ends up looking like if they ever make it. But again, you don't know what to believe. And some people think it's all nonsense and, you know, they haven't got the money and they haven't got the resources and others say that they're all ready to go. They're just waiting to buy an F1 team as soon as it becomes a viable option um, and isn't valued at, you know, $4 billion. Um so it's it's a fact. This is why I love it because it's it, there's always something happening. There's always some interesting commercial conversation going on, or some controversy, or you know, there's a crash gate, or there's you know a spying thing going on, or or even something like this Susie and Toto thing, and and you know buyouts of F1 teams, entries of new F1 teams, and manufacturers and engine suppliers and tires. There's always something interesting in Formula One that you just don't get in other in other forms of motorsport. And I've just looked it up. Lucky Sons is not spelt in the way that I would have expected. No, so. <laughs> no. You probably had I not told you it's Lucky Sons, you probably wouldn't have worked that out for yourself. No, um, you but, can help uh, them. Maybe once, they'll hire you as a brand consultant. I don't know. Well, I've 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 planted a couple of seeds, so you never right. know. 
Okay, well, you know, we'll have you on in maybe Series 4 when they're a front-running Formula 1 team and we'll hear all about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one, actually, going on that to do with, um, you know, whether it's now viable to enter the F1 grid or whether you have to buy an existing team. I understand that in the last Concord Agreement, essentially the team's decided, uh, and I don't know how, you know, if if you looked in any other industry whether this would be allowed, um, something like, and I could be slightly wrong, Basically, a new entrant has to pay $200 million split across the rest of the grid. And that's obviously to do with the commercial revenues being split 11 ways rather than yeah. 10. So, it, so it's really yeah. tricky to join the grid, let alone, as you say, get that approval from the FIA yeah. and then Formula One. Yeah, really difficult. And no one wants an 11th, you know, no one within the sport wants no. an 11th team yeah. for that for that reason. But equally, you know, fans would probably quite like an 11th team. And um, yeah, it's 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 really interesting to see what's going to happen with it. And I think the only way really is is for them to uh, is to buy an existing team and uh, and crack on that way. But it's challenging because they, they want to have their headquarters in Africa or Asia, you know, and, oh. and you know that that presents a lot of interesting challenges in in itself. So we'll see we'll see what happens with it. Yeah, not least they'll you know well there are definitely places where they're going to have some fantastic uh, access to to really talented engineers, but um, they call it, I don't know if they call it motorsport triangle or something, that kind of Milton Mm. Keynes, Northampton, Oxford sort of triangle in the UK. Very easy to find some talent there as well. So yeah, so yeah, yeah, good luck to them. Well, look, um, final news story, and then uh, we'll we'll sort of come towards the end of the episode, which is this week at time of recording, Logan Sargent was confirmed as the 20th and sort of final driver uh, in more ways than one, I suppose, for the 2024 um, Formula One grid, which I think, and Virtual Statman would probably help us out, is the first time that from season to season, the grid has remained exactly the same. Mm. Um, so uh, looking back on 2023, and we could talk a bit about Logan Sargent, but just more more generally, do you think that it's right that all the drivers have retained um, their position and that no one, I suppose, from Formula Two has had that opportunity to come up? I think it's a bit of a shame that no one's had the opportunity to come up. Um, you know, I think Logan Sargent's obviously going to have his detractors. There's going to be people mm. that would say he doesn't necessarily deserve to retain that seat in the, the cutthroat world of Formula One. But equally, is it, you know, it's a nice move of Williams to keep him there. There's probably some commercial elements to it, you know. But, um, but it, I mean, it, there are certain drivers that it'd be very hard to get rid of, isn't it? I mean, you know, while Sergio Perez hasn't had the best time, um, he's he's quite a handy number two. You know, mm. Um you know, Lewis is Lewis. Um, Fernando Alonso is this sort of reborn character that that is still able to pull out incredible performances. And Leclerc signed his new contract, which is going to be you know backloaded, but um, you can't get rid of him. Um, the two McLaren guys, I mean, you you can't replace either of those. Um, George Russell, yeah, I mean. I find George Russell a bit of a funny one. I nearly managed him once and um, I chose uh, Struan Moore instead. That was a Ooh. poorly judged decision um, back in 20... Almost. Uh, he was racing at Lannan and um, he just won the, I think it was F4 championship. And uh, I chose this other guy because I thought it was more marketable and George was a bit boring and look where George is now. Um, but there's not, I mean, there's there's only some... I mean, Lance Stroll, obviously, who doesn't want to be there. Um, you could argue that there, there are better drivers that could have taken that spot. Um, so yeah, it's, it's slightly disappointing. I'd have quite liked to have seen, you know, the likes of Liam Lawson come in and get a full-time drive. I've got a lot of time for him. Um, but um, yeah, it is what it is. I mean, it's, it's a good lineup, isn't it? There's, there's some good drivers in there, some decent personalities. 
Um, and uh, yeah, it's good. It's good. It's all right. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's a fair assessment. And it probably goes back to that point around, you know, if there are only 10 teams, you're going to be leaving out some really talented guys uh, one yeah. way or the other. Yeah. And and if you go back a couple of years, obviously you had Nico Hulkenberg on the sidelines. People obviously looked at him and said he hadn't got a podium, but equally he's done some good jobs in some in some sort of mid-ranking teams and, and has come back in and, and as far as I can tell, been quicker than Kevin Magnuson, who, who himself had time out of the sport. So yeah, you'll... You'll never be able to fit um, F1-worthy drivers in twenty seats, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's um, it, it, it's it's a tough thing to break into, but um, you know, it's it, it's a decent crop. I quite like him. Right, uh, there's some there's some really good midfield battles in there, and mm. I just hope that you know we we see something a little bit more competitive up the front. But you know, if you take Max out of the equation, it's actually been quite an exciting year. Yeah, I mean, you know, who would have thought that Sergio Perez would be world champion? You know, if, you, well, if we take Max out, I, I guess yeah. um, that the the drive of Fernando Alonso might distort that because it seems like if you compare, if you, there was a graph um, of race pace, I think it was, um, that came out maybe two days ago, and um, Max was clearly the fastest. Then it went Perez, mm. and then in third it was Lewis Hamilton, and then you had the Ferrari drivers together, quite close next, but then you had. Um, Alonso, like up there, a long way further up than his teammate. You mentioned last yeah. had his struggles and obviously broke both wrists. I think it was, yeah, the first before yeah before the first race. But like he's really I, the phrase "outdriven the car" probably uh, is meaningless scientifically, but he appears to have done as close to that as possible. Yeah, he's amazing. Alonso's a freak. Like he's he is an exceptional driver. He's mm. so so good. And and you know the drivers say it. Um, I've had chats with um, Alex about this. You know. He's, Alonso is just a, he's a class above absolutely amazing driver yeah and you know I'm, I'm not quite in my 40s but you know he's repping you know when you're watching football and uh you know they've all retired the people that when you're on you know you saw oh born in yeah question mark if that's the year I'm born um you know oh great and, and you've got Cristiano Ronaldo still knocking about but beyond that they're, they're yeah. all much younger um and it's great to see Alonso uh and Hamilton for that matter um still still knocking yeah. about uh, you know, it's still life in the old dog yet. It's weird when Hamilton always, it's, it's a funny one because I so clearly remember his whole career. It's hard to believe that he's now an elder statesman of the F1 paddock. It's weird. That time has just evaporated. I mean, when I started in F1, I remember um, when I was doing some work in Spa and I was I was working with a young Fernando Alonso and I remember, you know, he looked young and sprightly. And there he is now, you know, one of the oldest guys on the grid is the oldest guy on the grid. I don't know. Yeah, but he, you know he's he, he's he's at retirement age. It's nuts. Is that like, where have those years gone? How am I suddenly? How am I suddenly in that age? I just it blows my mind. Yeah, it, it's insane. I mean, trying to look back at the drivers that lined up with Lewis Hamilton, um, you can see the kind of era that we were in. You know, Fisichella had driven in the nineties. Barrichello had driven as far back as nineteen ninety three. I guess it was so. It really is, um, you know, an era from the start of Lewis Hamilton's career to where we are now. And I suppose we have to enjoy these guys while they're still around, right? We don't know how yeah. much longer we're going to have them. No, I mean, it's it's funny. And, and the amount of drivers that have gone through Formula One since those days, I mean, if you, you know, just looking back at some of the names, um, <laughs> you know, Heitfeld, Kovalainen, and mm. Vettel, obviously, you know, recently retired, Jano Trilli, as we talked about earlier, Timo Glock, mm. you know, the... PK, Weber, Rosberg, Barrichello, Nakajima. 
You know, there's some cool names in here. Sebastian Borde, Takuma Sato, um, yeah, Fisichella. It's just, it's, it's amazing what's gone on over that time, that period of time and, and the team changes, you know, from yeah. you know, Williams with the Toyota and, you know, Super Aguri. And uh, it's, it's, it's amazing where time just evaporates and all of a sudden there we are in, in this era with these insane cars and um and great to see drivers like lewis and, and fernando still able to to do it yeah well i think back then we were going to the cinema to watch the senna documentary and now there's a documentary about braun and that was 2009 which apparently is now historic but there we are <laughs> i know insane. i haven't watched that yet i need to catch up on that yeah it looks like it's going to be good i watched the first episode i just need to find the time uh i tend not yeah. to watch tv without my wife being around and so you know likewise think, uh, yeah exactly right you know what it's like after yeah. a long day. So look, um, yeah. a couple of uh, closing questions. The first one, um, probably slightly more sensible than the last, which is, um, I don't know, when I hear your story and you sort of talk about how you went into sports, uh, motorsport sponsorship and all the way through, it seems to be a lot about making an impression on people and building a network uh, and, yeah. and spotting opportunities. Do you have any advice for people, you know, whatever walk of life they're in, um, do you have any principles or, or sort of things that you think are important to succeeding in, in that manner? Um, I network uh, furiously. So um, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big advocate for um, things like LinkedIn, um, taking every opportunity to meet people, um, whatever um, point in life or their career they're at, whether they're at the start or at the end or somewhere in the middle, I think everyone has something to add um, and you can mm. learn something from everybody. Um, so furious um, networking and, and it's, it's a, uh, it's something that I think a lot of younger people now in this age of, you know, instant hits and um, you know, short form content and everything being online and digital. I think some of the skills around just being in a room and working a room and, having the confidence to talk to people um, is, is gone slightly. And that's what I've lived off. You know, I've lived, my career has been built off soft skills. I have no, um, I have no qualifications. As we said earlier, I've got no, you know, nothing to, to fall back on apart from talking. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think networking and also just um, working incredibly hard and putting yourself in positions where, your afforded opportunities you know opportunities have often just come across um my desk that you know with were not there one day were there the next and i've embraced them and run with them and opened up a new network and a new group of people that i can talk to and learn from and move on um and up the ladder hopefully and continue doing a job that i enjoy and earning hopefully more and more money as a consequence um and yeah, it's afforded me all sorts of lovely things in the sense of, um, not necessarily financially, but, you know, experiences and seeing different parts of the world and being involved in different types of business, not just in motorsport. There's lots of other things outside of motorsport that I, I get involved with and that I would never have had the opportunity to do had I not got, got up and moved and spoken to someone. Um, so I think, yeah, m movement and networking and getting out there, just, you know, being, being present. Fantastic. And yeah, I'm just imagining, uh, you know, where you were when you uh, got given the call, right, I need, you know, 
50 people who can move our athletes from A to B and making it happen, you know, even though it wasn't your field, you know, seizing the opportunity. So yeah, congrats. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, wh where can people find you? Uh, have you got sort of social media that you'd point to? Obviously, we've talked about Motormouth Media and so on. But, you know, wh wh where would you like to point listeners to? Uh, pro probably Motormouth. Like the, you can, if you if you look for the Motormouth podcast, you'll you'll find me somewhere. Um, uh, or, or LinkedIn. I'm I'm active on LinkedIn all the time. So um, yeah, that's probably a good place to catch me. Um, and uh, yeah, anyone can reach out and say hello. And I'm always happy to grab a coffee or have a virtual call and talk to people about their careers and how I can help. And you know find opportunities so yeah always happy to hear from people brilliant well um we'll keep our eyes peeled for that january february announcement with the race media and uh yeah it's been it's been fantastic it only remains to to ask you the final and most philosophically important oh. question that we ask all listeners and i know georgie is sort of waiting with bated breath which is um i guess the setup is i presume and we ask everyone this and no one's ever said no but presume you enjoy the occasional pizza <laughs> yeah i do i love a pizza especially a pizza express pizza okay well that's what we want to hear so it's a yes no question pineapple on pizza yes or no yeah 100 percent yes Oof, all in all in yeah all in i love in. pine i love warm pineapple uh, you could put it in a curry pizza whatever i'll take it okay georgie's going to be happy she's sort of team pineapple i'm i'm more skeptical me and mario andretti who was a a guest oh, really? on the show that I like to remind people of. Yeah, like we we're we're staunchly anti pizza. You know, he and I have a lot in common, obviously. But um, you know, yeah. you can choose. You can choose pineapple. That's up to you. That's fine. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to take the pineapple and <laughs> run with it. Enjoy it. Well, look, uh, Tim, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being our final guest of uh, 2023, and best of luck in 2024. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Okay. Well, guys, um, if you've made it this far through the show, um, do not forget to give us a like uh, or a rating wherever you're listening to this. Um, come on Twitter at Strip the Dip or, or an Insta Instagram similarly at Strip the Dip and, and just tell us what you think about the show. Tell us some guests you want us uh, to have next season. And also, uh, and I keep saying this without getting permission from Georgie, uh, if you pick a guest, then we manage to get them on. Maybe we'll bring you on and you can ask them a question. So until next time and look out for some Christmas and New Year goodies from us. Um, this has been your unusual co-host, F1 Blag, bringing you an episode of Georgie Stripping the Dipping. Good night. Bye.